Hello, welcome to the new Dalham History Podcast. Along the way, there'll always be games and jokes, but mainly this is serious history. Well, as serious as me and Gribbing get. Hello and welcome to episode six of Ye New Dalham History Podcast. It is too long. Yeah, far too long. Anyway, today we're going to look at the Russian Revolution and the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II. Which was in? 1917. Exactly. So, um, we're going to follow the same format as ever. We're going to summarise the topic. We're going for two truths, one lie. Gribbin's going to test me this week. And then a bit of technique for the A-level group, but it's still applicable to the IB group in terms of content. So, as much as we're talking about the source question for A-level, don't feel like you can't listen to the rest of the information. Uh, talk you through the idea of what an answer should take the shape of before we let you know where you can find some cool Russian stuff outside of the classroom. So to start with, we're going to look at reasons why the Tsar abdicates. We're going to go back and we're going to do long-term causes, a medium-term cause, and then a sort of very short-term cause. So long-term causes, we're looking at the failure of the Tsar to adjust to make reforms after the 1905 revolution. So there's a small revolution in 1905 but the Tsar still remains in power what he doesn't do is change enough things to satisfy all those people that were upset with him in the first place so he forms a legislative assembly known as the Duma however um they're not particularly effective. They don't really have any power. If they disagree with the Tsar, he can just ignore them. And there are four in total because the Tsar feels the need to dissolve them quite often. Um, there's lots of disagreements and they don't really work as people were expecting them to work. In a way, maybe over time, the Tsar would have become more and more, not democratic, but willing to listen to other people's views had there not been the First World War to contend with. Uh, Russia has the largest army in Europe, about one and a half million soldiers, three million people ready to step in at any one time. Uh, certainly after the war with Japan, they've learned some lessons and look to modernise, but they're not at the same place as some of the other great nations. Long-term problems included incompetent generals, Russian soldiers being the least educated of any of the other European armies, and the fact that Russian industry was behind, so their arms production was pretty inefficient. Um, the Tsar did authorise a massive programme of naval expansion. However, because it uh, faced no threats from other naval powers, it, it didn't really defend the nation. Um First World War went badly, really, from the off. There were some short-lived victories initially, but after the Battle of Tannenberg, uh, you've got the retreat. And basically, from 1915 through to 1917, it's just Russia being slowly but surely uh, pushed back. But back at home, that's where the real impacts fell. You've got inflation, you've got food shortages. Um, workers uh, under the war economy means that factories are eating up a lot of the population. So somewhere like Petrograd goes from 2.1 million people living in the city to 2.7. The infrastructure just can't support that kind of increase so rapidly. Um Embarrassingly for the Russian army, the munitions crisis takes place, similar to Britain in a way, but they've got the issue that soldiers are being asked to pick up the rifles of dead soldiers uh, to equip themselves, and they can't get the food across Russia. It all comes back to geography, but don't tell Fitch. It's the fact that you've got the uh, 
one major railway line and you can't transport goods uh, in both directions. Yeah, there's no actual sort of infrastructure that can transport goods around the country. So they end up with sort of train loads of grain sat rotting instead of being taken where it needs to go, either to the front or to the to the cities where the workers need it. A little bit like the KFC crisis of 2017. <laughs> we all remember it. We were there, kids. We were there. Um there's political problems related to the First World War too. Obviously, you've got the fact that Nicholas goes away to become the commander-in-chief of the army, leaving a German Tsarina behind to look after the shop. Um, not popular with the Russian people as they're fighting against the same Germans. And it appears there's rumours that the Tsar and Tsarina are being influenced by Rasputin, this womaniser who is alleged to be sleeping with the Tsarina by people. Probably not, but certainly the family valued his medical expertise, <laughs> uh, helping with their son's haemophilia. Um, lots of ministerial leapfrog goes on because of the Tsarina and Rasputin picking favourites and dropping people. And in the end, um, you've got the Tsar just not being willing to work with the Duma. Yeah, absolutely. So again, he sort of ignores the advice of the Duma. The actual, actually, the ministers advise him not to go to the front himself because that means that he is then directly responsible for all of the failures that are suffered by the Russian army. However, he ignores this advice, which has a, a really detrimental effect on his reputation and his standing amongst the Russian people. Like Theresa May going to Europe to discuss Brexit. It all became her problem. Absolutely. Exactly. Okay, and the last cause that we're going to look at is the February Revolution of 1917, which actually leads to the Tsar's abdication in March. So in 1917, there's a series of strikes and protests in major cities like Moscow and Petrograd. The war is going on, goods are becoming increasingly scarce, inflation is going, wages are falling... Um, people are unhappy with the situation that's been caused by the First World War. Also, um, not only in cities, but in the countryside, there's major unrest. It causes major um, hardship in rural areas, such as sort of famine and um, lack of resources. Male peasants are conscripted in large numbers, so therefore the workforce has dropped dramatically. And also, when those male peasants come back from fighting at the front and they see that their families have been left starving, they're not particularly happy. The Tsar responds by using um, the Okhrana to undermine the peasant unrest. So using the secret police against the people that actually have quite a valid reason to be upset because they're starving doesn't make him the most popular person. It wouldn't at all. And there's women involved, isn't there? Yes. On International Women's Day in February, um, the government announced that bread would be rationed and women, they just couldn't take Can't them. ration Can't, bread. No, people like bread. People love bread, <laughs> unless you're gluten intolerant. Yeah. Um, this led to panic buying, food shortages, more strikes. And on the 23rd of February, thousands of women took to the street of uh, Petrograd to celebrate International Women's Day, which then uh, turned into a sort of combination strike protest against the bread rationing, uh, which then turned into a general strike of 200,000 people protesting on the streets of Petrograd. That is quite a lot of people protesting, to be honest. Yeah. Against bread. I've got to say, I'm imagining, how does panic buying bread work? Because chilli just goes stale. 
you, you end up I mean, with you can't bricks. Put it in the freezer, then, can no, well, I suppose no it's freezer. cold in Russia. Oh yeah, could leave it's, outside it's the right time of year. Yeah. You could panic by bread. Wow. Yet again, geography plays a part. <laughs> okay, the final bit is his actual abdication. The trigger. The trigger. People have turned against the Tsar. The workers are unhappy. The peasants are unhappy. The middle classes are unhappy. He's not even there. <laughs> Uh, and people are sort of looking at Rasputin and his wife and thinking, oh dear, this is not going very well. So- Rasputin gets executed. <laughs> it's just a German woman running the country. She writes, does she write to him or ring him? There's like a phone call goes to him, isn't there? Like saying, you probably should come back and deal with your country. Everyone's revolting. And he's like, I know they smell, they don't wash often enough. They're like, no, <laughs> not that kind of revolting. And did he come back by train? Yes, he comes back on the train. Um, and... He meets with some representatives from the Duma, which is technically still running, but being ignored. Um, and they meet on his train and they request that he abdicates. The Tsar agrees to abdicate on the 2nd of March and abdicates himself for his son. And for his son, sorry. Uh, because he believes his son is too ill to run Russia. He tries uh, to pass the crown on to his brother, who mm. uh, refuses to take it. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, I, I, it's almost like if Charles is told to abdicate and he says to William would you like to be king and then William's like nah and then y- you wouldn't pass it on to Harry well you can't anymore can't now he's no. gone he's withdrawn exactly so and that's it that's kind of the end of end the of monarchy the but not the end of the Tsar because he is kind well, of he's not a prisoner but he's also not really free to to go about his life is he yeah he lasts another few months before him and his entire family get shot by the Bolsheviks yeah sad times yeah. but opening for a fantastic movie that we'll talk about later. Two truths, one lie. Right, now it's time for two truths and one lie. I How good was that jingle? Brilliant jingle. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm going to give Howarth two truths and one lie and he's got to uh, decide which one is the lie. <sighs> Russia. Not really taught Russia for a little bit. This is going to be fun. Okay. Okay, first one is Nicholas II was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1901. Uh, Nicholas II proposed and promoted the famous Hague Convention of 1899 uh, to end the arms race and solve international disputes peacefully. Uh, It wasn't successful, uh, but it was uh, among the first formal statements of the laws of war and war crimes. And due to Mm. this, he was uh, nominated for the Peace Prize in 1901. I want that to be true, but I guess I'll have to listen to the other two. Okay, fact number two. Nicholas II was canonised by the Russian Orthodox Church. In 1981, Nicholas and his immediate family were recognised as martyred saints by the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia. On the 14th of August 2000, the Russian Orthodox Church within Russia canonised them as passion bearers, a category used to identify believers who, in imitation of Christ, endured suffering and death at the hands of political enemies. It is true. I kind of want it to also be a fact. Bless him. Okay. Literally. (laughs) Fact number three. Nicholas was married to German princess Alexandra. She was incredibly unpopular during World War I because of her heritage, not helped by her being left to rule in Nicholas's absence with the help of controversial mystic Rasputin. What didn't help was Alexandra's PR stunt of dressing her and her daughters up as doctors to visit wounded troops, a uniform that had developed an association with prostitutes among the Russian troops. Oh, I want that to be true as well. Oh, well done, Grubby. These are three things, all of which I want to be true. 
I'm going to say that the third one is the lie. I'm going to say that the Russian people didn't think that their queen was dressing as a hero. Well, the third one is the lie, but only because the uniform wasn't a doctor's uniform. It was a nurse's uniform. Oh, no! So she was dressing up as a saucy nurse. Absolutely. (laughs) And her young daughters toured the troops dressed as prostitutes. Anastasia kept that one quiet, didn't she? Wow. Yeah, that's not in the Disney movie. That is not in the Disney movie. Um, oh, but that's good for the other two as well, then. Yeah. So they were canonised. They were made saints because technically they were. They did suffer and endure mm. death at the hands of political enemies. And surprisingly, Nicholas was nominated the Nobel Peace Prize. That was in 1901 before anything really. Still explosive stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in this. Uh, section we're going to talk about technique so we're going to focus on the a-level paper which is and we're going to focus on the source question so you get interesting that is on this mock exam isn't it the year 13s are going to have a go at a source question for russia excellent absolutely perfectly timed Mm. this is almost as if we planned it unless you're listening to this the week after mocks in which case ouch you're poorly organized yeah we were very organized okay so Source question. You get two sources and one inquiry. So the question will say, how far can you use sources one and two for an inquiry into? And then it will give you what you're looking for. So you need to read both sources. Mm -hmm. You need to uh, annotate or underline or highlight both sources before you start your question to find pieces of information that relate to the inquiry. That inquiry is so key. Don't just pick out random stuff to do with Russia. Focus on what the question's focused on too. So, for example, if it was on Nicholas's abdication, pick out the stuff to do with his abdication. Yeah. You need to use bits from the source. You need to use your own knowledge, but your own knowledge needs to support the work that you're doing from the sources. So it shouldn't be source one says this and then a whole paragraph of own knowledge. It should be a paragraph analysing the source with bits of your own knowledge put in to support how useful the source is. You're standing on the shoulders of giants. You're not trying to do your own thing. It's, oh, look, this is mentioned. I also know that this is true too. Absolutely. You're given lots of information in the source. Use it. And then back it up with your own information. So where are you heading with this one? What's the outcome? Do you have to pick which of the two sources is most useful? You have to analyse whether they're useful together. So you should have a paragraph before your conclusion that compares and contrasts elements of the sources. So at this point and throughout your essay, you're also thinking about provenance of the sources. Who's written them? When were they written? Where are they from? Okay, why were they written? Something we've been doing since GCSE. Yeah, With nature, origin, purpose. You need to think, quite often they'll give you sources from different perspectives, so actually you could remark on the fact that, well, if they're both saying the same thing but they're from two different sides, actually that makes it more useful because two sides of the same argument are agreeing. So, like, you could have one coming from Nicholas, maybe one coming from uh, the provisional government afterwards, and obviously they're going to say different things about the same event. Yeah, yeah. Um, You then, at the end, in your conclusion, need to weigh up the value of both sources. In this this part, in your conclusion, you could put down which source you think is more valuable for a historian. Fantastic. That's not too dissimilar to what you do at GCSE. No, just lengthening out a bit. You should have a paragraph on each source with your own knowledge in, with some provenance. A paragraph using the sources together how useful that would be, and then a conclusion. 
That's not too much to write, though, is it? About yeah. 45 minutes? About 45 minutes. You will need to take about five minutes at the start to read the sources and annotate. If I was going to do this paper, I would probably give myself 50 minutes for the source question and 40 minutes for the essay question mm -hmm. because it gives you that extra reading and annotating time. Brilliant. Now we do the final part of the podcast where we tell you where else you can find some information on the Russian Revolution for revision or just for entertainment if you like to watch documentaries like I know most of you do. Exactly. So Russia is a rich hotspot well, it's cold, but a hotspot of documentaries and information, isn't it? Plenty of stuff's been made. Yes. You have to be careful, however, about the things that you watch. There are some very inaccurate mm. things out there. Break it to me gently. The whole Nicholas and Alexandra film from the 1950s. Don't watch that one. Okay. Also don't watch the series on Netflix, which is called, I think it's just called The Sars or The Romanovs, Romanovs or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Don't watch that. No. Complete rubbish. Um, the one with Patrick Stewart. Is it one in the 1980s where they talked through the, the fall of the empires around Europe? Uh, I cannot comment because I was not born. Uh, it's pretty good though. He's got <laughs> hair in it. I He's think... got hair? Yeah. Whoa. Exactly. That is really old. <laughs> it is old. Um, okay, so there was one by Lucy Worsley. Yeah. What was that one called? Empire of the Sars on BBC. It is also available in full on YouTube because the BBC have taken it down, but that is very good. There's three episodes. Um, she is a bit eccentric, you might say. She might dress up in it. She usually does. <laughs> she can't resist it. No. Herself. <laughs> um, but not not like the Tsarina, though. No, no. Although she might do that bit in the documentary. Can you imagine? <laughs> We've not watched them. If she does, that will be. A bold choice. So that one's quite good. Again, Empire of the Tsars, Romanov Russia. Third uh, episode especially, really focused on the revolution, isn't it? Yeah. The other stuff's maybe a bit early. Mm, yeah. Sets the scene, though, if you're interested in the Russians. Absolutely. Anything else? Um, obviously, there's Anastasia, the um, cartoon. It's not accurate, but catchy songs, in it? Also, sort of captures the attitude towards Rasputin. It does. Songs? Peace, Land and Bread. If you've not listened to it recently, get that on YouTube. Peace, Land and Bread. It, once it's in your head, it's an earworm. Uh, there are also uh, some very good books by, I don't know how to say his name, Orlando Figures? Figures? Uh, not, Figures? not Orlando Bloom. I no, know that. No. Uh, F-I-G-E-S. Yes. He's written a tome of the Russian mm, Revolution. Which is bad. Yeah, which is about 700 pages long. But if you don't fancy that, there is a much, much shorter one that I think is available in the library. Three copies in the library. There you go. Um, obviously, you've got your textbook from school. You bought the revision guides. If you haven't, get in touch with us. I'm sure we can get you some copies if you're wanting them uh, for the A-level lot. IB, um, I've sent you through plenty of stuff on PDF. Um, just make sure that you're reading up because it's all about the, the facts. But it's also sometimes about the jokes. Joke time. I, I, I don't know what to say. We can't pick our favourite joke for Russia for this time period. So we're just going to do a few. There's so many good ones. Okay, right. Let's start with, where do they send the ironic Russian emperors? Where do they send the ironic Russian emperors? The sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> um, remember, if a communist is blowing up something... It's not your bomb, or my bomb. It's our bomb. <laughs> <laughs> oh. What was Lenin's favourite book? 
The fault in our zars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and um, what do they tell Soviet children who want to achieve their dreams? Shoot for the zars. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, kids. You shoot for the zars. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you for listening once again. It is goodbye from her. And goodbye from him. Bye! Bye! <laughs>